Welcome to Kite Line, a weekly radio program from WFHB that focuses on issues in the prison system and beyond. Behind the prison walls, a message is called a kite. Whispered words, a note passed hand to hand, a request submitted to the guards for medical care. Illicit or not, sending a kite means trusting that other people will bear it farther along until it reaches its destination. Here on Kite Line, we hope to share these words across the prison walls. Before starting with this week's theme, we wanted to share some prison-related news and announcements. Prisoners in the Barton Jail in Hamilton, Ontario, went on hunger strike last week. This follows an earlier hunger strike last month, which secured access to books and better food in the canteen, but the administration failed to follow through on the demands. At issue as well are arbitrary measures allegedly responding to the pandemic, but which failed to increase safety for prisoners. These include regular nightly lockdowns and restricting visits to a small number of visitors. Earlier this week, two Indianapolis cops were indicted for attacking two women during the uprising in late May. In response, 100 members of the Event Response Group, the IMPD's frontline anti-protest police, are threatening to walk out and resign. This is just one example of internal fragmentation within the policing apparatus across the country, as demoralized cops face criticism for open brutality and calls for defunding. Many labor organizers have called for police unions to be driven out of the labor movement, and activists in Seattle called a demonstration this week to smash the police union there. This week, Bella Bravo speaks to Jean-Darc Corti and Jared Shanahan. Corti is an assistant professor of sociology at the University of Tennessee in Knoxville, and also works with Face to Face Knox, a campaign to restore in-person visitation to Knox County detention centers. Shanahan is an assistant professor of criminal justice at Governor's State University. Together, they've written and researched several pieces, including the article they reference in this conversation, Prelude to a Hot American Summer, about the George Floyd Uprising. Today, we share the first part of their conversation about the current moment, its relationship to the Black Lives Matter movement of previous years, and the pros and cons of the defund the police demand. So the premise of our conversation today is looking at how the state manages um, poor people uh, before the uprising and how the uprising has hopefully changed that. I wanted to begin uh, with what happened with George Floyd's death. Um, Why are we seeing this uprising happen now? Yeah, that's a really good question. And I think that's a question on everyone's minds, right? As folks have been kind of participating and taking part in the protests, a lot of things came together, right, in this moment. I think, you know, we start our piece by kind of uh, paying homage to the fact that Sometimes there's like kind of these these moments that act as um, the the tinder that kind of brings everything into a, to a head, right? So we kind of like we liken um, the murder of George Floyd by police to um, other phenomenon that have happened globally that have ushered in a wave of protest, right? Specific to the United States, of course, racist police violence that was something that was very hard to ignore given the that this was the second wave of Black Lives Matter protests. The fact that, you know, it was caught on video uh, over eight minutes of just seeing someone being brutally murdered by the police, another Black man brutally murdered on the heels of other Black people being killed, right? Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Mori. So like this kind of the racial violence, but also um, the fact that it was in the middle of a pandemic that's just raging in the United States, out of control, that has really devastated 
working class communities of color specifically? One of the points that we tried to make early on in the article was to argue that there's a whole lot of white folks showing up to these Black Lives Matter demonstrations uh, and taking, taking a lot of risks. Um, if you look at the uh, direct action that kind of set off this wave of struggle, right, the street activity in Minneapolis, there were a lot of white folks there. And we are arguing that these are not simply allies. Um, these are not simply people who have shown up to give black Americans the same standard of living that white Americans have. These are people who are saying the standard of living that white Americans have is pretty wretched, too, as a matter of fact. And the image of George Floyd being slowly strangled to death, it's so horrible, right? But in, in an unfortunate way, encapsulates the experiences of a lot of folks who are watching their, their livelihoods just be gradually drained from them um, as, as the uh, pandemic rages on and there's no resolution in sight. That parallel between the daily slow death, the wasted death that many Americans um, have become accustomed to, and you have the saying of Black America that for when white Americans catch the flu, Black Americans, they die. And that, that parallel feels really stark here and really evident in the death of George Floyd. If this is really a moment where the standard of living for many Americans across racial demographics is lowering, and that's felt more intensely by Black Americans, then how is this rebellion against um, police violence? How have we seen protesters approach the changes that need to happen? Is this a matter of the police reforms that we were seeing with the first wave of the BLM movement, or are there more demands on the table now? The first wave um, of BLM was, you know, at the time, it was some of the hottest street activity I had ever seen in my life. I was in New York City at the time, and it was just massive. It was endless, you know. It's, it seemed like anything was possible. And looking back now, that whole moment seems quaint. See, and a lot of the kind of street tactics that, that we developed during that period have become obsolete very quickly. Um, as you see, um, a much hotter level of street confrontation um, necessitating all this kind of gear that folks are appropriating from Hong Kong and um, all kinds of tactics that I never learned as a young person. And so I think there's a parallel um, in how the movement has actually adopted a more militant horizon. The... The, whatever coherent demands came out of the wave of 2014, 2015, were actually very modest. We want to um, basically convict a very small number of police officers who have committed murder um, in the, you know, in the line of duty. And you know, subsequently, you know, the movement for Black Lives and groups like BYP put out um, more coherent programs and demanded kind of broader structural change um, in the way that we see uh, the movement today demanding. But by and large, um, the, the original kind of iteration of Black Lives Matter was really just making this demand to just, can you please convict some of these cops and, and can you just please just stop shooting black people, unarmed black people, just stop, just stop doing it. 
And today it's, it's unbelievable. I mean, you see this as a result of the kind of uh, the work that groups that were formed in that moment have been doing in formulating what it would look like to actually make Black Lives Matter. You see um, a sweeping host of kind of uh, structural, political and economic demands aimed at shifting the social wealth away from the repressive side of the state and towards the social reproduction. I think this wave, for, from obviously being far more militant, it was also more widespread, right? Um, there was no state in the, the U.S. that was like not touched by Black Lives Matter. And I think an, a more interesting phenomenon, too, was that it was spread beyond large cities, right? We saw small towns. I mean, small towns were like, I would wager and say, you know, looking at some of the small towns where BLM protests happened, it was like, you know, in some small town, black people were less than 10% of the population, right? So I think these are like really significant, like there's something a lot deeper that's happening, right, um, in these protests, right? It's, it's, of course, about police brutality, racism in policing, racism in everyday life, but um, there's something that, that signals that's a little wider, right? Um, and I think a second interrelated thing was that the first BLM, you know, even though the demands, especially put forth by, you know, the more coherent factions of BLM was not were not as radical, I think there was something that everyday Americans did see, right? Like the seeing the power of police, seeing like the heavy militarized police forces, and then as that wave ended, just like police violence continuing, like Jared mentioned, those kind of groups continuing to do the work. So in Minneapolis, like those groups were doing some of the work around defunding, right? Um, so it kind of put those groups and others in a better position, I think, this time around in, in the sense of the protest movement to be able to push those demands. And it, I think it, to some degree, it definitely had to do with the pandemic, right? And also had to do with like this show of force Right. I mean, how is it that in a global pandemic, there is no state aid, little federal uh, help, uh, you know, and all and police have all the money and all the power. Right. Um, and if you look at police budgets, I mean, it's ridiculous. Like some cities are like police are like 20 percent of the budget. Right. So I think there was like a sense that, you know, there's something wrong. There's an imbalance in the structure, you know, and I think we could talk maybe further about what. But I think it does express regardless of um, how radical or whatnot the demand to defund is. I think it does express what Jared is talking about, this sense that people, you know, people are attuned to the fact that there is this inequality in American life, that social institutions are, um, are not funded, right? How, housing, healthcare, none of these things exist, right? Uh, but that police have these like really shiny new toys every time there's a protest, right? Like people are like, what's going on, you know? I think that's a, a good moment to talk about what life for Americans, specifically poor Americans, have looked like prior to the uprising in terms of a lack of social services, but also in terms of a lack of increased, I want to say repression, but it's just an attack on survival by the carceral state. Well, I think that working class life in the United States and definitely disproportionately uh, for black and brown people has been characterized by what uh, Ruth Wilson Gilmore calls organized abandonment. I think it's important to realize that while police and prisons may seem like evidence of an inflated state interest in the lives of black and brown people, it actually represents the opposite. It represents a profound indifference. 
that might be hard to swallow if you're policed, you know, in an aggressive way from a very young age. But the fact that the only person that you're interacting with in your in your daily life is this kind of armed janitor of the state indicates that there are vast segments of society that are largely off limits to you. This kind of organized abandonment in, in the last 40 years has kind of crept out of the, the kind of highly racialized kind of ghettos, for lack of a better term, res reserved traditionally for, for black people and a small percentage of, um, of rural poor whites, and has become a more generalized condition of American society. And I don't have to give you the whole history of neoliberalism and all the rest, but it's a telling fact that the, amid the pandemic, income inequalities has actually diverged much more sharply than was the trend before. And, you know, when, when Trump goes out there and says, I don't understand why people are so mad about the economy. Look at the stock. Look at the stocks. They're great. I think he's actually confused. He, he, that's how he thinks about the health of, um, of the American economy. Um, he's not even really considering the, the, the experiences of most people who don't give if the market's up or down because they, they don't have a job and they, they're about to lose their house and so forth. I think this is why in so many ways, like the, the ter terms like mass incarceration, carceral state, things that would really be the domain of mostly sometimes academics or uh, to some extent, like folks who are involved in social justice activities has become like more mainstream. I think because there is a general acceptance that life is pretty... Is, is not that great, right? Um, in terms of Trump says America, let's make America great. Hillary told us like America is already great. Right? Like neither one captures like that the fact that America is really not that <laughs> that wonderful, right? It has all these problems, um, all these like structural structural inequalities, right? It ranks really low in terms of standards of living, education, the healthcare system, right? Everything is like in complete shambles, right? So there's this almost like, and I think the, the uh, pandemic in that way, uh, speaking directly to kind of on top of the police brutality, like really exposed the fact that what what some people had been saying all along, right? Like the healthcare system is, is terrible, right? Um, hospitals, you know, it's amazing that cities like Houston, New York, which are in many ways like built around like you know, healthcare, right, uh, to some degree, could not even deal with patients, right, could not deal with folks coming into the ICU, um, because so much of the healthcare system has been privatized, right? So there is a way in which um, I think a lot of people have tried, to, have tried to understand why since the 1960s, we have seen kind of the withdrawal of the state in terms of investing in, um, you know, working class institutions and life, right? So very different from like what the state could, would have done to some degree in the 30s, right, in terms of investing in public housing, all these. And kind of that investment has like been severely pulled back, right? And what um, what has been invested on part of the state has gone to kind of carceral justice system infrastructures or institutions, right? Like policing, uh, prisons, rural jails, right? So um in Tennessee, where I'm in, you know, in Appalachia, right? Like prison building has been an, an important part of like rebuilding the economy. There, that's like a really important thing to think about in terms of like where we stand with inequality. The 1930s represented a moment of heightened state investment in the reproduction of working class life. And so when I was speaking about it, I said, oh, I basically insinuated that it has been since time immemorial, right? That 
um, a, a majority of working working class white Americans, you know, had a reasonably comfortable life. But as we know, that's actually not not the case at all. And um, the the period of prosperity that Trump refers to when he says "Make America Great Again." Right was is really something that accompanied the kind of post-war boom from the mid '40s to the '70s, right? And prior to the 1930s, with in the New Deal, um, you had the same kind of economic polarization that we see reasserting itself today. And I think what what makes the 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 1930s interesting is it was the the New Deal represented the state taking over a number of services toward the reproduction of the the working class that had been developed by the private sector and philanthropic institutions during the progressive era, which was itself a response to one of these kinds of moments. I swear I'm not showing off my 10th greatest history knowledge here. Um, there's a point, and the point is that I think that we are, we are similarly in one of those moments of transition where the state certainly doesn't want um, to do any more of its job reproducing the working class then is absolutely necessary. Um, it has increasingly relied on punishment, on police, you know, uh, prisons, and I will, I imagine, pretty soon we'll be talking about alternatives to incarceration. Right? Um, the state doesn't doesn't want to uh, provide people with health care and housing and all the rest. And so, in a crisis moment like this, when you see the this these kinds of this massive groundswell of of resistance, right? And I imagine a whole lot of Democrats are going to start talking left very soon, right? And we might even get a few of our folks in there as representatives and so forth. Um, there, there's going to be some kind of recalibration of how the class is reproduced that might tend more towards um, social democracy and the reabsorption of some of those functions into like what they call the welfare state. This is the right moment now to talk about what makes the demand to defund the police different than other demands. And so some of the things that we've been talking about are looking at how uh, Jean Darka, you point out in um, one of your articles that mass incarceration is mostly a local phenomenon. And so when we talk about the carceral state, most people who interact with police, interact with prisons, they're interacting with community corrections. They're interacting with kiosks, they're interacting with their probation officers or field training officers, people who I think a lot of employees within the criminal justice world would think of almost as social workers. And so the shift from criminal justice, like employees, people who are police, to the nonprofit sector, from someone who works in criminal justice, that would feel really seamless. You would go like, oh, okay. Well, if the issue is that poor people's lives are hard and bad, and they need more assistance, well, we already have this incredibly expansive state infrastructure that primarily targets them already in the criminal justice system. Well, how about we just take that and we move it over into nonprofits or social services? And so I was wondering if you all could talk through what some of the problems are with that and how defunding the police could potentially get caught up in that knot. But what are abolitionists saying to push that horizon significantly farther than nonprofits. You know, I think that potential is very much as you've highlighted there. 
I think one of the most interesting uh, lessons from, if we go back to the 60s, right, the last era where like urban riots were in the hearts and minds of like mainstream America, right, is like, we saw the rise of black power movements, right, uh, community control. And those demands were, you know, to some degree also easily co-opted because, you know, not only there, you know, there was kind of a layer of black middle class, black managerial class that kind of took that, but, you know, the state at that moment was going through a period of crisis, right, where it saw nothing wrong with giving up its commitment to, like, how we talk about social reproduction, right, to the everyday life, and kind of saying, oh, you guys want it? Sure, have at it, right? And I think a lot of community groups saw it as like, oh, great, like, we've gotten rid of the state, the enemy, um, now we are going to run this together, right? So I think that's the danger with defund, right? It kind of reproduces that idea to some degree of, one of the pitfalls would be that idea of community control, right? That is just the, it's a, just a question of the state and getting the state out of it, right? And the state is like so ready to give up, uh, you know, a lot of that punishment power to nonprofits, right? Who could manage it on the cheap, who could uh, do a better job, quote unquote, because they are actually more tied to the community than a police officer would be, right? And I would say that, you know, in a lot of places where, you know, I was looking at police budgets and, when you look at cities like New Orleans, right, it's like 17% of the total budget is like the police budget, right? You know, Minneapolis, I think is like 12%, Oakland, 20% of the police budget, right? And what has happened is that in a lot of these cities, a lot of the budget money actually already goes to community policing. So I think it's very easy for like city council people, for police officers to say like, oh, look, we already have this amazing community policing program police officers are going to act as social workers. Like, we are going to rebrand one arm of our police department, right? And I think to that, that is something that activist community organizers will have to contend with. Like, what happens when the police says, oh, you guys are right, like, we need to do a better job. Now we're going to take, like, 5% and build this, like, community policing initiative, right? So I think you're right in that sense of that danger. Yeah, I recently read a book by um, Jana's colleague at um, University of Tennessee, Dr. Tyler Wall, the Policing a Field Guide, and he has a really interesting take on community policing. I mean, it, it, it kind of unpacks the history of the, the use of that term, and it basically means anything that happens when a cop gets out of their car. So we can see that that is a label that will be very easy to apply to just about anything that a city is already doing. Kind of along those same lines, I would like to reiterate Jana's note of caution about the defund demand. Now, first of all, I want to say that this is the kind of problem that you have on a good day. Literally, one year ago, it was my objective to convince like three or four of my students in a class of 30 that defunding the police and diverting resources um, to social services was a good idea. Now it is a national political issue that has a lot of support, even within official society. The problem is, like many great political slogans, you know, we are the 99%, all the rest, you don't want to believe it too much. You don't want to actually believe that there are sectors of our society that are politically neutral and that diverting money from police into something like schools, public housing, welfare, um, and the, you know, all the services that come under that, under that umbrella would somehow be politically neutral and would be 
free from the kind of coercive power that comes with the police. As we know, the history of our entire uh, civil society apparatus is one of great coercion, of great disciplining, of racializing, you know, uh, communities of color. Public schools do just as much um, to racialize working class communities of color as the police do. In fact, public schools probably do the more important work in the early days of a student's career before they've had much of an encounter with the police at all, you know, in setting the school-to-prison pipeline going at a very young age. And so while it is definitely, once again, a good day problem that we have, and basically class struggle is on the menu, we do not want this demand to be taken over by folks who actually believe that there is something like a politically neutral public welfare system that's not designed to just discipline, you know, working class people and police them in a slightly more palatable way. And also to kind of follow up with that, police budgets are really a drop in the bucket for the kind of like infrastructures that like our society would even need to build, right? So even going beyond like the, the notion that somehow the welfare state has been this like benevolent institution, right? When we know it's like criminalized working class people distinguished between the worthy poor versus the unworthy poor, completely criminalized black women, right? I mean, if we talk about like mass incarceration kind of being a more gendered phenomenon, I mean, welfare state has certainly criminalized black women, right? Um, so again, not only are these institutions not politically neutral, as Jared is talking about, but I mean, police budgets are still would be like a drop in the bucket for the kinds of like public housing we would need to deal with like the homeless crisis, right? So I think in that sense, it's again, it's a good problem to have because it does force people to think about, um, and the fact that I think people are demanding this speaks to, again, that people are recognizing that the inequalities are widening, right? That they are not getting smaller, they're getting actually a lot bigger, right? And people wanting to do something about that, right? So I think the defunding demand to some degree signals that move of like, okay, what we really need is education, housing, all of these things, right? Um, the second thing I wanted to highlight is, you know, you, Bella, you brought up the really good, great point about the nonprofits. And, you know, that's something that Jared and I write about and talk about. And, you know, I think in that way, um, there are also real class interests that I think go beyond. Oftentimes in the ways we talk about mass incarceration, we kind of like we just see the state incarceration and all of whatever it's carceral apparatus and then it's like everyday people right we don't have like sometimes a nuanced way to think about all the different interests that are invested in keeping this system going right and for better or worse like nonprofits are this like really important layer in our society right um so their relationship to these demands and to understand that they're not either also a monolithic group, right? But their interest is really important because, as you pointed out in the case of criminal courts, jails, probation, a lot of times it is these third-party nonprofits that are linked to it, right? They are many ways kind of like they have been offloaded that responsibility by the state and they share that responsibility of punishment and social control, right? And I think that's kind of like an important role to recognize. We'll share the rest of their conversation next week, and we'll have links to some of their articles on our website. 
please keep sharing the number for our coronavirus hotline. We'll continue to air messages from prisoners who call in from the inside and family members calling in for support for their loved ones. You can call in on behalf of a loved one or they can call in to record their message about the impact of the coronavirus on their facility at 765-343-6236. This has been KiteLine. Anyone can reach us via our P.O. Box, KiteLine Radio, P.O. Box 2422, Bloomington, Indiana, 47402. You can hear previous episodes of our show at wfhb.org forward slash KiteLine. You can follow KiteLine Radio on all social media platforms. If you want to support our work, you can find us at patreon.com forward slash KiteLine Radio Show. Any funds raised beyond operating costs will be sent to folks on the inside. KiteLine is intended as a means of communication between people across prison walls. KiteLine, WFHB, or any affiliates airing this program are not responsible for the opinions expressed on the show. Please join us every Friday for more stories, news, and insights about the impact of prison on our community. Thank you for listening.